hotcakes. Welcome to Hot Take, the podcast where we talk about the climate crisis and all the ways we're talking and not talking about it. I'm Mariana East Hedler. And I'm Amy Westervelt. If you listen to this show, you're used to hearing us talk about our newsletter, and that's because we're really proud of it. And we wanted to take a moment to tell you a little bit more about it. Yeah, and to give you some special previews of the content we've got going over there, um, all the different ways that we're playing with form, and just like all the fun we're having. Yeah, exactly. If you like what you hear, make sure you subscribe. We'll stick a link in the show notes. Yeah. Okay. It's time to talk about climate. So let's talk first about why we started the newsletter, because we started it in May. Mm -hmm. We started talking about it in April because we knew we were going to take a break from the season of the podcast, season one of the podcast. Um, And I think it was you who came to me and was like, hey, this would be a way for us to stay in touch with our listeners in between seasons. I don't even think it's going to be that heavy of a lift. Yeah. Um, Yeah, right? Well, and I noticed that people were really digging all of the content that we were curating on Twitter because there really wasn't a place like a one-stop shop for all of the climate stories that week. You know, you had like newsletters from specific publications and you had newsletters from specific writers, but you didn't have anything that kind of pulled it all together. So that was the idea initially. Yeah, there was no like aggregator of climate news, right? Like I use my Apple News app um, and the climate change section on there is always really sparse. The articles are from like two months ago. Like I will have a better idea of what the big climate stories were just from my own knowledge and from being on Twitter. But like who wants to be on Twitter all the time, right? Like you need a break. You can't really do that. So we kind of started it thinking about like, With the show, especially in season one, what we were doing was a survey of all the climate coverage and talking about all of the big articles, right? Like that was the service that we were providing. And we started to see that that was like a really big hole. And we didn't want people to lose that when we went on hiatus. Um, So it's like, okay, let's start a newsletter. Right. Um, And we still do the digest. I honestly think that's one of the most important parts of what we do is coverage from everywhere, from Vice to Huffington Post to New York Times to Earther, Grist, um, Inside Climate News. Like we source from all over. Yeah. Including even like random, you know, smaller local papers, international publications. Yeah. As much as possible. Yeah. And then we started writing these features like pretty quickly. Yes. realize like oh we actually have a lot more to say <laughs> well, and um, there's like a certain amount of freedom in writing for your own newsletter versus you know pitching an editor and I don't know I even kind of prefer it to write yeah. in a medium because it's a it's kind of a tailored audience too it's people who are like interested in what you're writing about so um yeah, yeah. 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 And it's different from writing a Twitter thread where people like right. read one thread, one tweet, argue with that tweet. And like you've got somebody critiquing you as you write it because um, right. our newsletter stories are generally pretty short. They're like, you know, the longest ones are like, I don't know, seven or eight paragraphs or something, which could like mm-hmm. quite easily be a Twitter thread. And so right. honestly, what I do is when I feel myself about to write a Twitter thread, I go write a newsletter story instead. Yeah. Anyway, yeah, the stuff that we've been covering over in the newsletter has covered everything from climate grief, <laughs> because I'm me, 
And then, like, you've been still keeping an eye on the courts and accountability. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> every other week, I'm like, hey, Amy, can you shit talk this person? <laughs> and I'm happy to oblige. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, so, yeah, it's like all over the place. So we wanted to, yeah, take a moment and give you guys some samplings. And one of the things that we're really into in the newsletter and in the show is that we see ourselves as like a climate media watchdog and a promoter of media literacy for the climate community and the climate curious. Exactly. And, you know, I also think that because we both have written for various outlets and worked in media in various capacities, like we like to talk about, oh, like we're seeing this trend happening with all these, Mm -hmm. you know, editors doing this or with coverage seeming to go this way and things like that. Oh my God. Yeah. That's our text messages. Yes, totally. Totally. Yes. Because even if there is no media to criticize, that's a something to criticize. Right. Um, so it allows us to like talk about just everything. And also having this newsletter allowed us to streamline the podcast in that's a way right. that was just really useful. We didn't feel like we had to talk about literally everything that happened in a right. period because we've already got this this vehicle for that. So one of the things I love that we do is we keep track of how much climate has been in the news mm-hmm. um, because one of the most worrying trends we noticed when COVID kicked off was that climate coverage plummeted. Yep. Um, and so we've been pretty much religiously watching that like a hawk and keeping up with the places that are studying that. Um, and reporting, we have a feature on this pretty much every month when those new numbers come out. And I wanted to take a minute to talk about a piece that we wrote in July. When the, Do you remember that Harper's letter mm-hmm. about yes. cancel culture? Yes. <laughs> God, it's crazy that that was just in July, but yes. yes. Yeah, that was just a couple of, of months ago. Oh. Um yeah, it came out on uh, July 7th, a letter on justice and open debate. And everybody from like, I think Noam Chomsky signed it and uh, Barry Weiss and all sorts of people signed that thing. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Chomsky. Uh, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. A lot of the like old elite in- intelligentsia signed it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. J.K. Rowling signed it. So many. Oh, of course. Gloria yeah. Steinem. So many mm-hmm. people signed it. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and we wrote a letter of our own that week. Our letter was titled, You're Worried About the Wrong Climate. This week, media stalwart Harper's Magazine published a letter signed by some very important people about the intolerant climate in our popular discourse. While plenty have debated and debased the merits of the argument in this letter, we couldn't help but wonder about another truly hostile climate, namely the one we all live in. By our search, and we admit, which we admit may be imperfect since the site does not have a dedicated climate or environment section or tag, Harper's has not run a single climate story once in 2020. In fact, their last one appears to be from last December. So they found space for people with very big platforms to lament cancel culture, but none for a crisis so big it's literally setting the planet on fire. We call bullshit. But Harper's is not alone. Climate stories have taken a nosedive ever since the COVID-19 pandemic made a foothold in the headlines. According to the latest numbers from the Media and Climate Change Observatory, globally, climate coverage was down 46% from June 2019 to June 2020, and down 28% in the U.S. from May to June this year. 
There's no excuse. Sure, there have been other crises, to put it mildly, in 2020, one of them being the drop in media revenue and resulting layoffs and furloughs. So plenty of outlets move their climate reporters over to the COVID desk or the race desk. But why couldn't they bring their climate lens with them? The two of us have managed to look at these issues all together since we launched. Why can't outlets with 10 or 20 times our resources and staff do the same? Why couldn't they cover these crises as the interconnecting and compounding conundrums that they are? The problem is less that you can't cover everything and more that you can't cover everything separately because it's not separate. But then again, that argument falls flat when outlets can make room for things like this letter or the Alison Romano Chrissy Teigen scandal. (laughs) Perhaps editors feel that it will all be too much. That readers could not bear the weight of a pandemic, a sick planet, and systemic racism, which is apparently news to some people, all at once. That if they had to face it all, they'd break down. Well, it's not an editor's job to make that decision. Their job is to inform the public, to tell the truth. And a half-truth is not, in fact, the truth. Also, readers know and they care. Damn straight. This was the free feature in that week's newsletter. And we um, absolutely wanted to keep at least the digest and one feature free for everyone every week. We are still doing that because we don't think like the biggest story in the world should be behind a paywall. So we do have a paid version that has more content and, you know, bonus clips from the podcast and all that kind of stuff. But we like to offer our free subscribers quite a bit of, of content and, the digest too. Because we, we understand that not everybody is able to pay $7 a month or $80 right, a right year now, because exactly. like, right, especially yeah. right now. Yeah. That was one of the things that we, uh, we kind of agonized over when we started was like, how do we make this accessible and also create a premium version that was very much worth it. And also like having the premium version allows us to produce this podcast. Yes, exactly. <laughs> free and open to everybody. Yes. That's right. Very important point. Mm -hmm. That was another part of starting the newsletter was to try to find a way to make the show self-sustaining and pay for production and all that kind of stuff. So um, exactly. So yeah. And to keep the podcast free. So it was worth it. Don't you think? It was. It was. Um, So yeah, I want to talk about one of the pieces that you wrote about um, wildfire, which of course you have like years and years of experience with. Um, yeah. out in California. And yeah, you wrote about what it was like covering wildfires before people were willing to say wildfires and climate change were connected. Yeah, which wasn't that long ago. <laughs> it wasn't. So it was called Where There's Smoke, There's a Fire. In 2017, I was a stringer for the Washington Post, which in my corner of the country means being sent last minute to cover fires and occasionally shootings. I wrote a story for them that included a quote from the Cal Fire Chief about how climate change was making it hotter and drier at night, and that made it tougher to get on top of fires. My editor wondered if that quote made the story too political. I managed to convince that editor otherwise, but check out this headline they stuck on the story about a community that was evacuated for floods and then fires all in the same year. That headline was, Floods, then fires. California residents again face evacuations due to the elements. The elements! My point here is not to seek petty revenge on past editors, although I'm not above it. 
It's to illustrate just how deeply false equivalence goes. False equivalence is the idea that to be a quote-unquote objective journalist, you must tell both sides of a story equally, which of course presupposes that there are two or more equally valid sides to any story. And guess which industry had a hand in creating and pushing that idea? Yep, the fossil fuel industry, of course. <laughs> yeah. They truly sure are did. at the root of all evil. <laughs> yes, totally. Yep, they are. I think in, well, I don't know if it was in the same newsletter or not, but you also wrote about the West Coast fires recently and particularly about what is happening with prisons when fires or floods or hurricanes hit. And it was so disturbing. Yeah, no. Yeah. um, I called it cruel, unusual and abominable. Whenever a disaster requires an evacuation, my first thought goes to the people who can't control their movement, people who are regularly and legally chained and restricted, prisoners. As the West is seized by fire and Louisiana and Texas are still reeling, I have been waiting to hear of prison evacuations. Mass incarceration was always cruel, but as it intersects with the climate crisis, it becomes even more so. We never should have had a system that deprives people of their liberty, their mobility, their humanity. But in the age of accelerating extreme weather, where the very sky changes color and the land beneath us sinks into the sea, I don't understand how anyone can rationalize it as anything but cruel, unusual, and abominable. This image of people being locked in a cell when there's a fire, like you know, right yeah. outside the building. Because they don't horrendous. get to decide to leave. Right, you know? exactly. Like, exactly. Yeah, the part of the story I didn't read, you know, and talked about, mm-hmm. like, I couldn't know, I couldn't find any prisons that had been evacuated in California. I found a few that were evacuated in Oregon. And of course, it's like taking one overcrowded prison into another overcrowded prison that's running mm-hmm. rampant with COVID. And right. like, where are those prisoners going to go? Um, And then also finding out that ICE detention centers were not evacuated during Hurricane Laura and like the abominable conditions that they're in. And they have no choice in the matter. It's, It's crazy. Today's episode is sponsored by Ravensburger Puzzles. I don't think I've ever been so excited about an advertiser in my life because, yes, I am a giant puzzle nerd. And Ravensburger makes the best puzzles, as anyone who loves puzzles will tell you. I live in a place where we actually get pretty frequent power outages. (laughs) And, And when we do, I like to break out a puzzle. It's also a fun way to keep my kids off of their screens and do something sort of calm and meditative together. It's very satisfying when you snap that last piece into place. If you are looking for a calm and mindful exercise, I highly recommend checking out Ravensburger. Regardless of your preferences or skill level, you'll find a jigsaw puzzle that suits you perfectly thanks to the wide range of imagery, themes, and piece counts available. You can start small with a a pretty straightforward puzzle and work your way up to over 40,000 pieces. Are you up for the challenge? Shop Ravensburger on Amazon today.
This holiday season, get a gift for yourself too, and keep it simple. I gave myself the gift of a better, more convenient laundry experience. I know, I know, laundry doesn't sound like a gift, but honestly, EarthBreeze just makes it so much easier. Think about how you actually do laundry. You have to work out how much detergent to pour, lift that big plastic jug, hope the goo doesn't get everywhere. It's annoying. But EarthBreeze Eco Sheets look like nothing I've ever seen in the detergent aisle. It's almost, it's like a dryer sheet kind of, but it's the detergent and you throw it in and then that's it. There's no measuring, no nothing. It works in hot and cold. It's also dermatologist tested, hypoallergenic, and free of bleach and dyes. And it fights everyday stains and odors. You get a powerful clean, but you don't have to deal with all that packaging. Right now, my listeners can get started with Earth Breeze and save 40%, 40, 40%. Go to slash drilled. That's E A R T H B R E E Z E.com slash drilled for 40% off your subscription. Earthbreeze.com slash drilled. Of course, we want to talk about disinformation, right? And disinformation yeah. has been going crazy with the wildfire season. So, really crazy. Really crazy. I feel yeah. like I've, I've had to write about it more than once. That's how crazy. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. And it's kind of like your thing. You know this stuff like the back of your hand. Um, yeah. But this was a, an especially wild year for misinformation around Antifa set the fires. No, uh, Sierra Club Sierra set the Club. fires. And, yeah. Oh, it's about forest management. It's not about climate change at all. And yeah, you, right. you wrote a piece called Liar, Liar, Pants on Fire. Right. And, and I love and, that title. Yeah. And in the beginning of this piece, I was talking about the rumors that, you know, Antifa set the fire, the really egregious, obvious disinformation stuff. But then I wanted to talk about this other kind of more subtle thing, too, that was happening. So but disinformation works in subtle, insidious ways, too. There are various attempts afoot to build straw man arguments about climate change and fire at the moment. On the one hand, there's the no need for alarm set, shouting that it's all the various other contributors, bad forest management, overdevelopment in places that homes should have probably never been built, a buildup of brush, not climate change causing these fires. For what it's worth, Michael Schellenberger, the most vocal proponent of this argument, has said multiple times, including in his book and to me, that climate change is a factor, just not the factor, driving increasingly hellish fires. Which brings me to the other camp, those arguing that climate change is the sole driver of these fires, also unhelpful. So I'm still seeing this today in a lot of articles and discussions about fire, this desire actually not to make a both sides argument, but on both sides to mm -hmm. point to one thing driving mm -hmm. catastrophic fires and mm -hmm. It's just not one thing, you know, and no. like it's, it's super and it's, it's really, it's actually really, really unhelpful for, for folks who want 
to see climate action to push the idea that it's just climate change driving these things too. Because when I spent some time, you know, in the sewer that is like the Facebook group that thinks the air clubs at the fires, um, all of the people in there were like, was, were using that as a, as a way to be like, these people are lying. They're Mm -hmm. ignoring the forest management problem. They mm-hmm. have an agenda, blah, blah, blah. It just, it plays into that narrative. And it's, it totally and does. It's unhelpful and it's, it's untrue. And it's not, and it's not necessary. I feel like sometimes I feel like the climate movement is like MSNBC and Fox. You know, it's like MSNBC mm-hmm. got super shouty just because Fox was. Yeah. <laughs> and like, you don't have to do that. You don't have to like also dumb down and simplify your argument just because that's what the disinformation people are doing. Yeah, that's not how you outsmart people. Um, no. And that that reminds me of like another narrative that we fall into on the climate side, which is about like India and China, specifically yeah. India, that like really drives me crazy. And I finally wrote about it after these really bad floods in India um, over the summer, India and Bangladesh, where people just like lost everything. And it was in in some of the poorest parts of the country. So yeah, I'm going to read a little bit about it. I called it Drowning in a World on Fire. You're probably used to hearing India's name bandied about as one of the top three GHG producers in the world, falling behind China and the United States respectively. But that number is deceptive to the point of criminality. As of this month, China produces 28%. The United States produces 15%. India produces 7%. Not even double digits. And because India is a country with a whole ass billion people, per capita emissions are way, way, way lower than those in most developed countries. The average American emits more than 20 tons of carbon dioxide a year. The average Indian, 2.7 tons. I bring all this up because there is a strange and disingenuous way that India is talked about in the U.S. vis-a-vis the climate crisis. When it comes to emissions, it's always in the first breath. When it comes to climate action, it's always, what about India? But when it comes to the impacts, there's a silence so loud it echoes. What's unfolding there is nothing less than a humanitarian crisis, and it's happening on the heels of fearsome cyclone Amphan. But our media has barely said peek boo about it. That's bullshit. That's unacceptable. Absolutely. Yeah. People, I mean, that is another thing that I feel like the kind of climate denier people or people that are opposed to climate action here talk Mm -hmm. about all the time because they're like, well, well, even if we reduce our emissions, there's still India and China. (laughs) Right. Like, uh... it's like, why does India still get to build dirty energy? And it's like, Whose responsibility is it to make sure, like, India deserves reparations for for colonialism. Right. And that reparations, I feel, should be in the form of supporting its transition to clean energy. Yep. yep. You don't get to, like, tell them to pull themselves up by their bootstraps when you set the yes. bootstraps on fire. I mean, 15, 20 years ago, people in the climate movement, in the international climate movement in particular, we're talking about climate reparations and I really feel mm-hmm. like that conversation needs to come back because we need to bring it back. That is exactly how you address this problem. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? mm-hmm. Like, yes, yeah. the first world needs to fund the transition of 
of the developing world. Absolutely. Yes. That's exactly, you know, you benefited from cheap, dirty energy for a hundred years. Plus you need Mm -hmm. to like pay for these folks to transition past that point if you want them to do it. And, and like, if you're not willing to do this is the thing that happens with these, like debate me bro type guys too, which is Mm -hmm. like, they will say like, Oh, you know, if you want the world to take action on climate, you're condemning, you know, Africa and China and India and all these places to subsistence living in poverty and blah, blah, blah. Like as though this option of, you know, the Mm -hmm. first world investing in their transition is not there. Yeah. Actually, Um, speaking of these debate me bros, uh, you wrote a fantastic essay on that. (laughs) Um, That I would love for you to read a quick segment about in like, about what these debate me bro type guys are. Yes. Okay. Have you noticed more folks arguing for technological solutions and against social changes to address the climate crisis lately? Or the rash of, hey, don't panic about this climate thing, books? Some people call these folks carbon bros. Others call them eco-modernists, climate delayers, lukewarmers. I call them technocrats. Actually, now I call them debate me bros. Technocrats believe essentially that we really just need the technological fixes to deal with climate change. New energy sources, a food system made more efficient by technology, gadgets that suck CO2 out of the air, and various adaptation approaches. Social change is both a waste of time and an impossible feat attempted only by silly people who either don't understand the problem or don't understand the technological solutions. These guys are a pain in the ass. Oh, yeah, seriously. And they're like yeah. multiplying like gremlins, dude. They are. They really they're like are. all over the fucking place. Yep. They sure yeah. are. Uh huh. Uh huh. That actually really leads into your one thing at a time uh, yeah. essay because that's exactly the problem with these guys, I think, is that they cannot. They are just like, oh, forget about climate. We need to deal with poverty or forget about, you know, (laughs) forget about climate. We need to deal with energy sources or whatever. And it's like, yeah, we need to do it all at once. You guys have just like got to catch up here. We can't do justice and climate change at the same time. And it's like, I don't, you can't do them separately. I'll tell you that. Exactly. Um, Yeah. yeah. (laughs) Also, like this essay also was the basis for what became uh, the essay I just published in Rolling Stone called uh, yes. 2020, the year of the converging crises. Yes. So, yeah, that's another thing that's great about <laughs> the newsletter. Before something becomes an essay, like you'll be familiar with the idea. Yeah. So this is called One Thing at a Time is a Luxury. Yet every time one of these major events has taken off, I've heard echoes from within the climate community that now is not the time to focus on climate because there are other priorities now. That's literally never true. Because climate affects everything, there's never any conversation in which it's inappropriate to bring it up. In fact, it's irresponsible not to. Do you know how privileged, how safe you have to be to be able to focus on one problem at a time? Black people have never known that life since we were kidnapped and brought to this country. The same is true for indigenous people since white people brought themselves to this country. And for other people of color here and really around the world, we've always had to live with compounding and competing crises. We're not that delicate because we've never been afforded that luxury. Trust me, we can handle it. We can probably teach you how to do it too. 
It's incredibly infantilizing to assume that people can't possibly grasp the enormity of the threat they're under. After all, you do. You can keep all these ideas in your head at the same time. Why can't everyone else? Do you really think you're that much smarter than everyone else? You're not that special. You've just spent more time thinking about it. So time to share those insights and connect those dots, homie. Just don't be a dick about it. Speaking of dicks. Um. (laughs) (laughs) Are you going to talk about the time you cussed out Elon Musk? I am. I am. (laughs) I love this one. (laughs) because the title of that piece was eat a dick Elon Musk and I don't regret it (laughs) (laughs) oh god yeah Elon Musk I have a long history of beef with this guy (laughs) he's yeah yeah you do just um I don't know I just I find him very problematic okay Mm -hmm. so and you'll you'll understand why after you listen to this this week Tesla CEO Elon Musk threw his latest Twitter tantrum, this time targeting officials in Alameda County, California, who said it wasn't quite safe yet for his precious Tesla factory to open. First, he threatened to leave California, prompting hashtag by Felicia to trend in the state. (laughs) Then he sued the county. Then he went ahead and opened the factory anyway, tweeting dramatically, quote, if anyone is arrested, I ask that it only be me. Yes, this is the man who has a fucking newborn at home. Yep. Yep. Did we ever figure out that kid's name? No idea. No idea. Some kind of symbol. Uh, Musk absolutely deserves credit for helping to change the image of the electric car and of the potential of America to embrace electric cars forever. That's a real accomplishment. But Musk also occupies a weird place in the pantheon of climate dudes. Like, if the planet of the humans guys didn't happen to shit on electric cars, I'm sure he'd totally bro down with them. I'm sure he absolutely would. He's a Peter Pan with a rep for misogyny, which his followers, let's call them muskrats, take to extremes. (laughs) (laughs) And abusing his employees. He complains about how it's hard out there for billionaires and named his new baby with much younger than him pop star girlfriend Grimes a symbol. And then there's the bit about how he didn't actually found Tesla, a classic Silicon Valley rich guy power grab story. It goes on from there. And I have an entire list for you of all of the reasons that I find Elon Musk extremely annoying with links and documentation. (laughs) He's unsavory. He's unsavory. Yeah. Yeah. He's a branding genius, though. Oh, yeah, definitely. Yes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. He's kind of like a cult leader. Really? Oh, yeah. That's uncomfortable. True, though. Yeah. Speaking <laughs> of cults, um, <laughs> one of the things that I've enjoyed the most about the newsletter is being able to build a community. And I think, like, yeah. it's, it, maybe a community might not be the first thing you think of when you think of a newsletter. Um, But we definitely noticed that people were uh, building a community around our Twitter feed and like around the podcast. And we were like, wouldn't it be cool if we could extend that beyond that? And so one of the things that we've been doing is um, we had happy hours in some of the earlier days of the quarantine, which as much as a Zoom happy hour can be enjoyable, I, I had a lot of fun 
on them. We've also like got special cocktail recipes that we share with our <laughs> with our community. Um, we have um, open threads on the nights of the presidential and vice presidential debates that have been the only thing kind of keeping me together, to tell you the truth, um, because Twitter can be a little bit too public sometimes. And we don't get to really go to a debate party the way that we used to be able to go and watch these things together in a bar. So, like, it feels kind of isolated and lonely in a way that um, these threats are really helpful for that. Exactly. And, like, I don't know. It's just, I I do feel like this sort of camaraderie and people Mm -hmm. are very kind to each other so it's a very Mm -hmm. welcoming and um Mm -hmm. supportive community i would say like you know i don't know i love our hotcakes everyone's like funny and smart and really 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 super nice and there's a really there's like a wide variety of um knowledge in there it's a very like safe space to ask questions about climate so it's not like a you know there's not a high bar for for joining the club it's good no and people are really sweet uh like uh civically engaged in yes. their local community so it's like we can say like who knows what's going on in michigan and somebody will straight up know what's going on in michigan it's like at awesome. a really yes. yeah at a ground level thing. actually like we have a really we have a lot of geographic diversity in our group mm-hmm. i think mm-hmm. you know when we oh, had yeah. we know we kind of asked like where's everybody logging in from and it was all over the country it was great and right. even some folks international there's folks yeah. in australia i just sent a t-shirt to someone in australia in fact oh so, snap. yeah um, remember, we had someone log in who was like a bat expert and i was like yes <laughs> she was amazing yeah she was so cool um yeah. So she's like the real crazy bat lady. I just pretend yeah. to be one on Twitter. Um, yeah. She's my hero. Um, so, and also, I mean, I just love saying hotcakes. That's <laughs> true. That is true. Yeah. <laughs> Took me a while to be able to say that without laughing maniacally. though. <laughs> true. Also true. Yeah. Um, and like when you have a community like that, we can also support each other through some of the harder things about I mean, every, nothing's easy about climate change, but probably the hardest thing is um, the grief. Yeah. And so we talk a lot about the anger, but the grief is, is a really hard place to be. And mm-hmm. so I've enjoyed um, writing a lot about that in the, in the newsletter, too. Every time you write about it, uh, we get an enormous response from people who are like, oh, thank you. I was totally feeling this. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's nice for people to see their feelings reflected and just to know that, I mean, it's crazy how much um, we still have to say, like, yes, it's totally normal to have feelings about climate change. <laughs> it's you totally know? normal. And for them to run the gamut, yeah. right? Like, it's totally yeah. normal. Yeah. So I'm going to read from a piece I wrote called We're Not Okay. Um, I actually think when I wrote this, both of us weren't doing that great with our climate grief, actually. Yes. Totally. So it was, it was, uh, yeah, it was apt. Over the summer. (laughs) Yeah. Last Sunday, I got hit with one of those especially crushing waves of existential dread. One of those waves where it feels like you're on fire and drowning at the same time. If you've been grappling with the climate crisis for any amount of time, I'm sure you know what I'm talking about. It can be a lot to carry. Sometimes it overwhelms you and you just can't keep going as normal. 
The grieving cycle, the experts tell us, is supposed to end with the acceptance phase. But the thing about climate grief is we can never really get to that phase because, well, we can't just accept the end of everything. Or at least I can't. So we cycle in and out. As much as I try to stay in the anger phase and to milk it for all it's worth, sometimes I spiral back into the other phases. Sometimes I wallow in despair. If that's you too, I want you to know that you're not alone. If you, like me, beat yourself up for not being productive during those spirals, know that taking care of yourself and processing your feelings is work and you are doing it. Know that the fact that you can feel those things, as bad as it might feel, is a very good sign. I never want to be the person who can look at so much suffering in the world and feel okay. In that way, my discomfort is my comfort. It's not okay. We're not okay. And that's okay. That made me sad just listening to it again, but in a good way. I know, it took me back to the summer. I know that the courts are top of mind for everyone right now, and they've been a big way that anything is happening on climate in the last four years. But yeah. as someone who covers the courts a lot, I, I was getting a little worried about just how much we were relying on them. And uh, now we're kind of seeing why with this whole Supreme Court thing, yeah, <laughs> um, because, real. you know, stuff happens. Um, mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. this piece was called the courts are working relying on them does not and i had kind of talked about some of the recent wins so i wrote these are wins but the role of the courts is also worrisome in a few ways first policies can be implemented and do a lot of damage before the courts get around to rolling them back then there's the long-running right-wing plan to pack the courts with super conservative judges most of whom have lifetime appointments so it's really hard to tell how far nonpartisanship will really go. And finally, there was already a dearth of reporters who understood the ins and outs of environmental law or climate liability. And by the most recent count, we just lost another 36,000 journalists. So it's doubtful these cases or others like them will get the coverage they deserve. That has held true. <laughs> Actually, the really unfortunate thing is that I'm seeing is um, that almost all the people writing about cases right now are coming from like the activist sphere, which Mm, is mm -hmm. fine, but it just limits your audience a little bit. I'm not saying that as like a slam on the people that are writing about it. No, of course we need them too. We need them too. And I actually think like that this, this dividing line and, you know, these terms about activists and journalism, whatever can be problematic. But um, because of that, the only like kind of large outlet that I see covering it is Bloomberg. And even Mm -hmm. that can be kind of niche, you know? Um, So they don't have like a huge reach. No, Um, it's very business focused. So yeah, yeah. exactly. Exactly. But um, speaking of the courts, I wrote this piece after Ruth Bader Ginsburg passed away. And that's the other thing that's, you know, the thing about the newsletter. We often are writing this thing on Saturday morning um, yes. and we send it out on Sunday morning. Um, yeah. And we've got like the whole week <laughs> to digest. Mm-hmm. Um, so like anything I was thinking about writing on Monday made no sense by Friday night when totally. RBG passed away. But it also um, made it so, I mean, the the like doing the newsletter later and later has made it so that we can 
be super mm-hmm. timely in a way that we can't really do with the podcast because there's like, you know, a necessary amount of lag time to do production and all that kind of stuff. So, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, it also just like gives us time to like bake our thoughts over the course of the week instead of like, you know, flying off the handle on Twitter. Exactly. So anyway, um, this one was called We Don't Get to Give Up. The idea of Trump and his death cult getting to pick yet another justice for the court that has become our last layer of anything even resembling protection is terrifying. And I understand why so many Friday night tweets contain just one four-letter, all-encompassing word. Fuck. (laughs) But as hard as this is, I hope you know that this is not the time to give up. Mourn, shout, stomp, scream, whatever you gotta do, but do not give up. Not if you're here in the pursuit of justice. Here's the thing about justice. It is inherently collective. That means that no one person can achieve it alone, which also means that the loss of no one person can end it. As hokey as it sounds, as hopeless as it sounds, we're all in it together or we're not in it at all. Mm -hmm. So no, it is not the time to give up because that time is never coming. We don't get to give up. That's right. That is, is my, right. Yeah. This is my pep talk to myself all the time. I mean, yeah, we're going to have to like remember this again. Forever. <laughs> over and over. Yeah. I mean, yeah. it is It is actually very helpful. I, I found myself sort of like um, repeating this recently because I was driving around and I turned on the radio and it was like NPR playing the confirmation hearing, you know, live. And I was just like, the bad Amy, the bad Amy. Yeah. yeah. I'm like, this lady's totally going to get confirmed. The Democrats are once again going to bend over and take it. And like, there's nothing, you know, it's like, oh, yeah, we have to yeah. just keep, keep on keeping on. Which is why um, our, our hot cake community is so important to us. And, you know, we really want you to join. And that's why we wanted to share these pieces and these yeah. excerpts. Um, it's more than even just me and Amy writing. We have guest posts and Q&As. And yeah. we're really committed to bringing in new voices that we don't get to bring in on the podcast. So it really is worth it. And we just wanted to share that with you. Yeah. So subscribe. Even if it's just the free version, go for it. Yeah. It's worth it. Like, honestly, I, I think we hear from at least a couple people a week about how useful it is to have all the links in one place. Mm-hmm. So it, even if you're just interested in that, it's worth it. But I also think that our, uh, you know, we as you can see, we have a lot of extra content in there. Commentary, yeah. essays, reporting, all kinds of stuff. So, um, yeah, we're yeah. proud of it. We are. We are very proud of it. Hot Take is an original production from the Critical Frequency Podcast Network, created by Mary Anais Hegler and me, Amy Westervelt. Our producers are Isis Madrid and Maria Muriel from Pizza Shark Productions. Our artwork was done by Amanda Pinedo and refined by Larissa Ikeda. Special thanks for help on the newsletter to Elia Griffin, Juliana Bradley, and Georgia Wright. You can follow us on Twitter at Real Hot Take and find the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Please remember to rate or review the show. It helps us find listeners. You can sign up for our weekly newsletter 
through the link in the show notes. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next time. 